At various times in our lives, most of us pause to consider just what makes a creative life well lived. For our guest today, with over three decades of life immersed in protest and activism, his creativity is, well, nothing less than radioactive. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Dave Sweeney. From successfully protesting against uranium mining and waste dumping in Australia and Europe after Chernobyl, to agitating against nuclear arms, to redefining how our world sources energy, these have been Dave's ways of building a creative life well-lived. He calls it paying his personal and planetary rent. Dave has written about environmental, indigenous and resource issues for many years as both a print and radio journalist and a media advisor. In his time, he's worked with Friends of the Earth, Oxfam and the Australian Conservation Foundation. Today we talk about environmental politics, civil disobedience and effective action. We talk about how the anti-nuclear fights of old can be sources of energy for the climate fight we're in now. No unsung hero, we also hear how Dave travelled to Oslo in 2017 to receive the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the organisation he co-founded, ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. By the way, the audio for this chat isn't perfect. It was done in the field and there's a little hum in the background. But there's good stuff in the foreground, so we ask you to try and let the other stuff go and listen to the good stuff. Ready for some inspiration? Well, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. I was wondering if you could describe to me what is it about what you do that makes you a change maker? I suppose it is that I'm in the fortunate position of being able to pay personal and planetary rent by doing my work. And my work is... In two, it's two sides of the coin. It's an oppositional side and it's a promotional side. And the oppositional side is to advocate and work to oppose projects that uh, would leave a, a very significant environmental or cultural impost or burden into the future. And in my area, it's in extractives around uranium mining, it's in irresponsible radioactive waste dumping, it's in nuclear weapons trade. The positive side of my work is is to promote how things can be done differently and better, how we can embrace energy systems that don't literally cost the earth but can actually save it, how we can put aside weapons of mass and indiscriminate destruction and instead try and advance international rules-based ways of addressing conflict, and how we can responsibly consider whole life cycle in our decisions and how we can responsibly manage you know, the long-term challenge of radioactive waste. So on one hand, it's like um, a, a hold-the-line, shield-wall, quite resistance-based 
piece of work and on the other hand it's like celebratory and and embracing and promoting positive things so that works for me to sustain me because it it, you've got both the the terrier and the pussycat you've got both (laughs) you know a friend and foe in the one in the one sort of campaign and I suppose how that makes me a change maker is I look at things that would have gone ahead if a whole range of people including myself hadn't taken effective action to stop them so we've stopped negative change. And I look at things that are growing or are positive or communities that have greater agency or a whole range of other indicators of, of the, the more positive aspects of the change. Yeah, wow. Feels like the best life, right? Like a creative life well lived. It is, it is a creative life. It is well lived. It's, um, it's a bit unrelenting and sometimes it is a little bit like the forever war. Things loop back, arguments loop back, stories loop back and the same sort of it's a little bit like a... I've worked in it for a long time and people say, are you still doing that? And I think sometimes that's a little bit like saying, are you still working for the MTC or working with the Sydney Theatre Company? Um, because yes, you are. And the broad parameter is that's where you go for work. But every, um, every season is different. There's sometimes the fundamental, uh, you know, stories and, and themes of betrayal and, and defeat and despair and rejoicing and resistance and but it's different. Like it might be an international waste dump proposal for South Australia. It might be a community opposing a uranium um, proposal on sacred land or near a particularly special place. It varies. There's constants. There's themes of respect for people, thinking long about impact and managing impact, themes of respect for country. But it is really interesting. It's never dull. I look at my life and I think, yeah, it's um, sometimes I'd like it to be slightly slower but I'd never like it to be fundamentally different. And I feel blessed in what I do, who I do it with, what I do it for, and um, what I've been able to achieve. Yeah. Wow. So let's get into having a conversation about why you're doing it in the first place. Mm. I'm, I'm keen for us to go back as far as you need to, I guess, to, to explain to me a little bit about why did you get involved in any nuclear campaigning? Where, where did this all come from for you? Well, it came uh, when I grew up, I suppose, I grew up as one of a clan, basically. There were three brothers who had adjoining farms in what is now the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, but was then distinct country. So we grew up like a bit of a clan, like a bit of a mob, and... um, and had a run of country, and I thought that was the way it would be forever. I thought that's how it was. And yet within a very short period of time, five or six years, it went from sort of the rural ideal to um, small farms being chewed up by big houses. The area where I used to run amok and play in the creek and all that is now utterly gone. It's home to Victoria's biggest Toyota and Kia dealer. It's an industrial estate. It's a massive shopping estate. It's crisscrossed by freeways. It's it's quite devastating. It's progress. Yeah, quite devastating, dislocating Not sometimes awful. to see. So I suppose for me, at an early age, I had a couple of things that were, in a sense, contradictory, hardwired into me. One was the importance of your community mm. and your place, but the other was um, the fragility of that. Not to take that for granted. And I think that has been really important in shaping, I suppose, my stepping along to be involved in environmental politics, which is often around the celebration, the protection, the defence of places. Yeah. Wow. 
And also, I mean, it's, it's so reminiscent to some of the struggles we're finding now, right? But I'm not going to go there yet. It makes me think of even just the last election and people's concern about what was happening to their places as kind of like the experience you had in your place of, of rapid economic development and what that means. But so you were growing up in that community and then how did you become, like what was the first social action that you were involved in? probably would have been stuff around, it was a farming community, so there was um, a lot of stuff around if someone had fallen between the cracks and couldn't do work on a farm, you would assist with, you know, you would see uh, people assist with the provision of food, with uh, helping with key periods like, you know, cutting hay and different stuff. So I suppose that sense of that collective help, you know, as, as evidenced in so many underpinnings of, of country life, be it the footy club or the firefight, you know, the CFA or the CFS. So those sort of things were important to me. I was, uh, I went to the local Catholic primary school that had a very strong, you know, culture of community service that sort of stuff, you know, mm. go and visit Catholic it. social justice. Catholic social justice uh, tradition. And and uh, some of the teachers were of the more um, authoritarian, top-down Catholic line and others were more inclusive and social justice. So there was like, you know, scary God and gentle Jesus <laughs> in the one school. And the gentle Jesuses were good. Mm. And there was stuff, there were programs like, you know, go and sit with one of the old crew at the old folks' home once a week, read a story for half an hour, tell a story. So those sort of things, which were not political, they're intensely political Mm. because they're about, you know, values. And relationships. They're about relationships and values and stuff that that matter, but you can't necessarily measure. Yeah. Mm. Qualitative. Mm. Yeah. And um, I suppose then, you know, you get a bit, as you get older, further down the track, you look at more one step more removed from your immediate circumstances and you look at how decisions are made, who benefits, that sort of power stuff. Or, or some of us do, mm. some don't. Some mm. some people never really seem to take that step into... Why do you think you did? Oh, I think I did because um, I came, like my family, I was the youngest kid, so there was lots of conversations where I'd just sit quietly and watch my older brothers and sister and my, my parents talk about things and I'd note that you could actually hold different views without having a fight. You could have a a robust discussion. Um, And I'd see how you could hold two different sorts of opinions about the one set of sort of assumed facts. And so I suppose for me, it became, there was, I was lucky enough to see in some ways that, that we construct, you know, parts of our reality, that it's not just a a given. And then I was really always interested in reading, like I, I, read through the local library at the town that I grew up in. I read through, um, the reading was a great release and comfort. Was there a particular book? That's cool. There wasn't a particular book. I think it was, though, that sense that you could lift the veil and get a little look into other people's lives over time, too. Like, you could time travel through books. You could go back and actually get a sense of what it was like for people a couple of hundred years ago. And I just used to love that, which I think just gave you a bit more of a sense of a bigger world. Mm. So and growing a sort of like semi-objectivity, like not ju- you weren't just living your local specific particular experience, you were pulling back from that at times to yeah. things like literature or books. Absolutely. And, and one, like I'm curious and I also can sometimes watch, you know, I, I did, you know, uh, you know, two eyes, two ears, one mouth. Sometimes it's good to take in twice as much as you put out and just let it reflect a bit. I'm very into... 
opening the mouth when something needs to be said or you know what needs to be said or something needs to be prosecuted. But sometimes I like to sit in the silence too and have a think about it. And so as you finished school, like how did your social action change? Like I'm, I'm curious as to, I know that you were active in, your activism with the anti-nuclear movement began in the 1980s. What what transition between 1975 in school and, and that point in time? Yeah, so I did 75 to 77, I think, in this um, country school that was, you know, pretty basic. And then that effectively went into receivership and I got a get-out-of-jail-free card and did the last few years of my schooling in Melbourne. And so that was like, you know, the big city um, and like um, proper food, people treated you, you had rights and you got treated with respect and you had opportunities and the school had a music room and a theatre group and sports ovals and that weren't just like rocky and that had padding around the footy posts and stuff like that. It was... You know, you've just won... Luxury. Yeah, luxury. You've just won the ticket. Um, and that also was a time to where there was like a school newspaper and I got plugged into that and there was a debating option to do debating, which was great. And there was like all this sort of performative stuff and this, you know, these ideas. That, you know, one of the great things about urban centres is it brings different people together and smashes us into a space and, and you can have quite a strange, you know, interest, but you can find quite a lot of people that share it and suddenly you're a group or a gang or a society. Um, so I really relish that. And that was also the time when, uh, you know, there was Reagan, Thatcher and Gorbachev, uh, not Gorbachev, Brezhnev. It was like Cold War was very, very chilly. Um, and there was very big peace marches and Palm Sunday marches. So I did, I went to all of that sort of stuff and was involved in a lot of those expressions, but as set piece theatre expressions really, Amanda, not really like initiating it or, or great deep things like turning up to a rally or an event. Um, but through that sort of stuff, um, and again, reading and talking with people and seeing what was going on, got more and more involved in actually sort of analysing systems and, and power structures and how things operate. And what did that lead you to do with that analysis? Well, it led me to get more and more involved in you know, social action groups and protests and that sort of stuff. And I suppose for me, early 80s would have been a big time. I got involved in, in protests around Melbourne. Um, I was involved in you know Franklin early Franklin blockade and early um, Roxby Towns blockades. And so that was a they were good things for me because like it was really precious country that was up for grabs and people's rights, and particularly in relation to Roxby, um, a uranium project 400 k's north of Adelaide, which is this massive beast now. We nearly stopped that one, and, and we didn't, and it's this massive uh, extractive zone now. In retrospect, I think that that time, 83, 84, 85, um, we could have fundamentally changed, not to say that we can't again, but we could then have fundamentally changed the relationships, which is the fundamental relationship that's broken in this land between the first Australians and the last Australians. And I just watched how those people played an absolutely shameless um, scare campaign. Um, I've seen plenty of them since, but that was the first sort of one that I really saw fold out. And I was intrigued and... The, the the questions, like I mentioned before, about thinking long, about impact, 
and about respect, um, very important. I had an Italian friend at the time and uh, her mum used to say that the last shirt has no pockets, which was the Italian version of you can't take it with you as you go, when you go. And so that made me always think too about what is it that you, you know, you can amass any sort of money and, and standing and status and, you know, comfort. But ultimately, even if you like stay off the stimulants and live modestly and exercise and eat low fat, this and that, you know, you're going to last 90 years tops. Yeah. Then you're gone. Can't live forever. No. So what is it that you value? I had, and I think that hark back to the Catholic thing too, of like, yeah, that's all well and good, but you know, one day you're going to have to face the big interview. Um, and so I had a, I had quite a, and I still have quite a sort of, um, not cavalier, but not too fussed about uh, um, accruing too much in the form of superannuation or franking credits, but very <laughs> interested in accruing in the form of experience, engagement, and, and you know, I suppose the respect of, of your comrades and your peers. I want to ask you a question about your experience. A little bit after the time that you've just described, I, I know was the Chernobyl disaster, and I know you went to Chernobyl. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. I didn't actually go to Chernobyl. Oh, I, you didn't. I, I, I later, I went to Fukushima many years later, but Chernobyl did... did tell, I guess, tell me a little bit about how yeah, Chernobyl yeah, shaped you yeah, at the time. Yeah, well, that, that did, it, it featured very, uh, very significantly um, because it was very big. I remember, you know, the imagery of Gorbachev with his birthmark on his bald head, um speaking, and it was one of the first times on commercial news in Australia that I'd ever heard a foreign, ac- a foreign language, which wasn't common at that time. Um, and it was straight from him and it had a voiceover that explained uh, that there had been this rapid rise in pressure, led to a build-up of hydrogen and the subsequent, the, no, the, an explosion at the reactor and the subsequent release of radioactive material. But it was and it was that was more German than Russian. But it was done like that, and I remember sitting there and going, "Ah, oh, you know, and this is the way it begins. This is very, very bad." Two years later, I was active, obviously, in in anti nuclear politics, and there was this surge in concern and everything. And two years later, I was I was living and working in Europe, um, and I was working with friends of the Earth International at the time. And um, Friends of the Earth International, I was involved with them and they hosted and held the first approved Western or international NGO, environmental NGO gathering in Poland. So the generals are still in charge in Poland and there was this air of a place on the cusp that could open and flower that could be locked down again or there, there, there could be blood in the streets. And there was a lot of attention to this conference because he's these Western environmentalists. And I remember meeting activists there, um, Polish environmental activists, and the standout story was one who said that they, he'd done 18 months for concern about um, a coal plant and a very dirty processing plant and area, Nova Huta near Krakow in the south of Poland. And he was saying that, that in May, Chernobyl happened in April 1986, and in May, from May, for the rest of his sentence, they got meat, 
they got leafy green vegetables, they got fruit oh, and veggies, no. and it was like they just thought they had landed on their feet because they had a diet in the outside world at that time that was pretty basic, starchy and pretty basic, and on, in the inside world before this time, it had been gruel, and suddenly it's, uh, it's beef and greens and veggies. And it was all, all the plume product going to hospitals, but particularly oh. prisons. And it was absolutely, absolutely um, telling. And then later I met uh, and, and was very fond of a, a young German woman and she told me how she had finished school just the week before Chernobyl Secondary School and she was so excited and then Chernobyl happened and she said that, you know, that's when my life finished, you know, and she said it didn't, obviously, but she had five years of profound depression as this 18 to 23, nothing's worth living. And then a few years later I was in Austria and I was speaking at this conference in Austria and did a subsequent, you know, talking, speaking tour with some people in Austria and Germany. And um, one of the people there was a, a Russian liquidator. He had been a young Red Army reservist, mobilised, moved to Pripyat, clean up this, 30 seconds. It's exactly the stuff on the HBO, you know, run, 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 30 seconds, heavy leather jacket, shovel, shovel, run back. And he was the most ferocious and joyless drinker I've ever met in my life. Um, like I like a, a tipple and a talk and a laugh and so we would often find ourselves on this trip, the last one standing, and he would drink with a mechanical joyless ferocity um, and just had this complete thing that my life is ruined, I'm now on borrowed time and in the meantime I numb this. And so, like, I just put those little pieces together along with, you know, being arrested and bashed around by coppers at Australian uranium deposits and this and that. And I just thought this is a really profoundly scary, impactful industry that is a silent killer. So it gave me, a, a, I suppose you could say, a base, lo a base load energy to continue to resist. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many, I mean, look, there's so many other pieces of work that you've done around nuclear Mining, in particular, I'm thinking Jebeluka. That was one of my first protests, so I feel pretty honoured to meet you because you helped organise it. But before we start talking about how you do what you do, I just wanted to ask you a question about ICANN, which is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which is, you know, it's a pretty cool campaign given it's got a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. <laughs> tell, yeah. us the, tell us the story about how it began. Yeah, it was extraordinary. It began, obviously, people have been against nuclear weapons and concerned about it for, since the day they were invented and unveiled. It began uh, from conversations in 2005. There'd been the failure of this international conference, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference. That both accepts nuclear power and urges nuclear weapon states to disarm. 
The part that accepts nuclear power gets talked up and trumpeted. The part that says you must disarm gets conveniently forgotten. And the nuclear weapon states say, well, it's not feasible at this time because of um, insecure circumstances or difficult security situation. So there'd been this conference in 2005. They had not even agreed on an agenda. People were absolutely despairing and frustrated about how can we implement something. So there's this set of conversations that grew um, out of, particularly out of... um, health workers and doctors and medicos, but also included academics and activists and advocates and others. And uh, that happened around in Melbourne through 2006 and it was unveiled at Victorian, you know, this very, could have fitted in like a, a, a people mover, you know, it was a small crew. And meeting in bars or meeting at um, different organisations, offices or meeting in a cafe or someone's house. And, you know, that didn't stop the ambition. The ambition was let's form an international initiative that will make nuclear weapons illegal in the same way as weapons like, you know, chemical and biological and landmines and others. So no no um, shortage of, of appetite, massive shortage of capacity, and we just went for it. And Malcolm Fraser, actually the late former Liberal Prime Minister, launched it uh, in 2007 at the Victorian Parliament. And there was a series of international conferences that were focused not about the geopolitics or the blokes who understand the acronyms, but about the humanitarian impacts of these weapons. Medical people, Aboriginal and Indigenous survivors of testing, more and more people, and and on came the Red Cross, Red Crescent Society with their gravitas and connections, and more and more nations, Mexico, Austria many sort of lead nations became strong supporters. And there were three international conferences over a number of years looking at humanitarian impacts. And then it just sort of um, was like whipping cream, you know, slow, 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 then it moves, then it goes, or like blowing on a fire, little, 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 then it goes. And it just, 2017 was the um, was the go time for ICANN. The, uh, the idea actually just took massive traction and there was a very speedy, very constructive set of discussions in the UN over uh, treaty text, which was adopted. 122 countries put their hand up, moved with a rapidity that stunned veteran diplomats. And then in later in, um, in 2017, ICANN was awarded, like you say, the Nobel Peace Prize for advancing the treaty. So what we have now is a treaty. Um, we're on our way to that treaty becoming international humanitarian law. And it's it's a game changer. I want to ask you, um, as we transition to the question of... Uh, I want to show we, you. Oh, you're going to show me? I want to show you because I had oh here for God. A, a talk in <laughs> Melbourne last night. Oh, my God. I wish there was a video. Some things aren't great <gasps> It's for so radio. heavy. Far out. For the record, Amanda is now looking at the Nobel Peace Prize. Fucking excellent, mate. That's just so... Good on you. Oh, makes me want to have a little cry. Good on you. Have a little hold and a little cry (laughs) anytime you want. And that's, it's been, it's been beautiful. That response has been, I've seen people, I couldn't believe it when it happened. I've seen people and, you know, hard nut union heads, old Aboriginal uh, ladies in the bush um, and just everyone takes a moment, pauses and it's just the real thing. It was really good for me to see how serious institutional power, uh, which, you know, the Nobel Committee with all its gravitas and recognition and all that is, can say, yeah, 
there's one for the little people. And it was really heartening to see that rather than it always, always going, you know, that institutional power or sort of self-interest is um, reinforced or recognised. It was beautiful. It makes me want to ask you, I guess, just to to reflect a little more about the power of celebration and recognition for all of us, you know, like not all of us are going to win peace prizes, <laughs> yeah. if only, right? But all of us can take a moment for recognition and celebration of ourselves and, and of each other. How important is that for making this work work? Yeah, really good question. And, and the short answer is it's absolutely essential. It doesn't have to be vast, you know, amounts of I need an intensive 10-day yoga workshop in, you know, on northern New South Coast or this or that. It doesn't have to be that sort of thing. But you do need to, you need to, I think, have, have two things which are really important and don't always come easily to me or to, I'm sure, many. And one is to have generosity to yourself that you actually weren't put on earth to solve these problems. You know, it's, it's, you, you are not responsible for addressing all this. You are responsible for doing a bit. You are responsible for taking a step, the right path, but you aren't responsible for bringing it home. So give yourself a bit of generosity and a bit of leeway. Don't drive yourself all the time. The other thing is, but also at the same time as letting yourself off the hook, sometimes put yourself up a bit too, puff your chest out a bit too and say, this is good what we're doing. This is important what we're doing and to celebrate things, what, we're, what we've done. Because if you look at all the good things in Australia and most of the good things in the world, they've been won. They've been hard won. They've not been granted because of largesse of, you know, or the, the benevolence of government. Or the benevolence of government or the largesse of the ruling class or however you want to say it. Power hasn't willingly devolved power. People have shaped or contested or channeled or sneakily snuck a bit out the back. And all those things that make things worthwhile, you know, that be it, if it's either working conditions or, or um, protections or environmental protections or recourse and appeals and all those things, they, they basically come down to respect for a person irrespective of whether that person has a swag of money or is of benefit or short-term utility to you, respect for their essence. Those things have been won and they need to be won and they need to be defended and reinvigorated. And the way that we can do that, rather than a big sign, oh, here we go again, is, is to take a bit of time, a little bit of pressure off us of the need to do it all and add a little bit of recognition to us of what we've done. Mm. Yeah, because it is extraordinary. If you did, if you did a, a sort of, um, I laugh, I've heard for so many years, oh, as if that'll work in the real world. And it's the most bizarre construct, you know, often by people who, who, um, whose version of the real world is an economic system that, you know, finds profit in plundering the very planet that provides the living for all of us. You know, no jobs on a dead planet's more than a good slogan. But in the real world, if you sit down and you say, OK, this is what Rio Tinto own in assets, this is their political influence, this is... Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You did the cost-benefit analysis, and then you ran along the other side. This is what the Mirar people of Kakadu own, and this is 
their assets and their political linkages and power and the amount of peers they know, then um, you would just say, well, that's a no-brainer. You know, that mine goes ahead. And it doesn't, it didn't, it won't. You know, and it is that power of the people and the power of, of belief and that sense of we can achieve stuff. Because if we didn't, if we didn't get out of bed and pull the boots on in whatever variation of social change we're working in, they're all related, they're all a spectrum of respect, then the world would be vastly poorer. Yeah. Makes me want to ask you to reflect, because you talked at the beginning of, the, of this conversation about promotion and that your work has been involved in promoting the world that we want. But I also know that midway through your career, you did something quite similar to this, right? You did Stick Together, you did your own radio show, right? We have podcasts these days, but you did, just a, yeah. you did a conventional radio show, which was both about informing people, but also a little bit about this question of recognition and respect. I'm wondering what you think the power of that kind of space, that kind of communication, that kind of promotion is. Good on you. I, I, I like that because I've done nuclear free politics for a long time. So for a lot of people, that's all I've ever done. But you know, I have interests outside and before and, you know, all that sort of thing. And, and one was, did four or five years as an independent journalist and one of the things was stick together, a continuing national public radio show. Of oh, course, sorry, it's just <laughs> adjourned, right? <laughs> dealing with uh, industrial affairs. Um, yeah, and a lot of it was respect and, and it was really interesting. And there's there are parallels a little bit in what you're doing, but one of the things, that, uh, uh, one aspect of the stuff that I love doing at Stick Together was talking to people about their work. Like we do lots of interviews with unions. We did lots of stuff around industrial rights, attacks on, on unionism, um, you know, workplace justice and all sorts of things. But I used to really like talking to people about their work because there's something really fundamental about, and it's really important for people's self-esteem, um, about employment. And when you talk with people about their job, they go, oh, it wouldn't be interesting for radio. And you talk about it and it's fascinating. It's really, as you would know, it's mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, from the earliest days uh, um, of people communicate profoundly and deeply and communicate so much more than just the content through stories. So I'm a great believer in stories. I know that that's now very much the sort of social movement and um, non-government, you know, the non-government organisation and civil society sort of thing, the narrative, the story arc, the... <laughs> Everyone's the, into the narrative ju- now. <laughs> the journey of engagement, the this, the that. And, you know, there's there's absolute, you know, value in all that sort of stuff and that's important and people map stuff out in systems. But ultimately, it's a yarn, it's a story, it's a connection and it's finding bits of commonality. Or the best thing is when you're just watching that evolve like around a fire or somewhere just where there is a little bit of space for that. And then someone goes, oh, that reminds me. And they just, you know, the baton's passed and it rolls into that. And I suppose, you know, um, at the risk, of, oh, I'm not I'm not hostile, I'm not tech phobic or anything, but I do, I sit on Melbourne trams and I see people put the buds in and put the screen up. And I just think they might be doing really interesting things. They could be listening to great Changemaker podcasts. Probably are, right? Probably are, because <laughs> they seem to be nodding and they all seem to be intelligent and making stuff and doing stuff. So maybe they are. But I just sort of think sometimes that shared right here, right now mm-hmm. experience is good and we need to create little bits of spaces actively create, I think, a little bit of space for the shared and a little bit of space for the silent. Yeah. Yeah. As well as, you know, the busy, the busy's fine, but the, the your question about 
story. I've, I reckon getting stories out, there's, there's two f- things. One is sort of almost like broadcast or representational, and that is like, here's this issue, whatever it happens to be, and we need to get that issue out because people of good heart will go, hang on, that's not right. So that's the broadcast story. And the other is the sort of relationship story, like you said, you know, the, the building connection, finding commonality, just the, mm. the human story. Absolutely. And, that, and then the connection change happens, right? That people are exposed to new ways of thinking through understanding something about how someone else has experienced Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And also you, it's also that thing too, if you've, if you've heard someone's story and you sort of understand where they're coming from, it, you mightn't agree with their position, but the, that sense of hostility or we've got to take them off at the knees and all that sort of exactly. language, that that's different. Yeah. You say, look, and it becomes more like family where you say, look, you know, uncle at the wedding, we shouldn't talk about this because we're not going to agree. But it's not like... Yeah. As I, opposed know, to trolling them on Twitter. Yes, exactly. I want to ask you, just in terms of this sort of lessons and translation, I mean, I can't help but... Imagine as an anti-nuclear campaigner, right, we've got climate change now. Climate change is not your first existential battle, right? The idea that, yeah. that we as a human race have the capacity to devastate our own existence um, is something that you're very familiar with. I'm hoping listening are lots of people who are involved in climate battles, hopefully many strikers, you know, young um, high school students, uh, university students, other young people who are thinking about the battle ahead and knowing that it's a hard one, no matter which country they're in, everyone needs to do a lot more and differently to, to confront climate change. What are some of the lasting thoughts or lessons you take away from the, the anti-nuclear campaign that is still ongoing, I'm not suggesting it's not yeah. ongoing, yeah. That, that you think speak to the climate change battle today? Great, thoughtful question. Yeah, and that, that question, if I take the long way around about answering that, that question about existential threat, I've, I have looked into that beast for many years. So in one sense, I have a great sense of solidarity with people who, for the first time maybe, Aren't, aren't just contemplating the loss of a loved one in the course of life, but the loss of a loved planet. Because the bulletin of the atomic scientists has the doomsday clock, you know, which, which sets hands at minutes to midnight according to the severity of, of threats facing the world. They were established by the scientists, many of whom were involved in the Manhattan Project, the America, let's get the bomb before anyone else in, in World War II. Now, the hands of the clock are currently at two minutes to midnight. The reason given for that very, very close timing was the twin existential threats of unchecked climate change and nuclear war. And two minutes to midnight is where we sit now in 2019, and that's as close as it's ever been, even in the coldest part of the Cold War, even in the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're right there. So the existential threat factor from climate change and the threat of nuclear war is profound. My advice or my sense would be to say to people that there is a trajectory, but there's not an inevitability. Things can be changed, things can be stopped, things can be started. And people make the difference in that. So there is a trajectory and the trajectory is not good, but it's not inevitable. It's not a sentence. We can shape it. So don't give up hope. Hope, humour, humanity uh, in the world we live in, revolutionary 
and essential attributes. So that's one thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is that that these are twin threats and there's a very strong push in the International Atomic Energy Agency amongst pro-nuclear uh, voices that some brand themselves as eco-modernists, um, use that phrase, um, that the answer to climate change is by embracing and revisiting and adopting nuclear power. These are twin existential threats. We don't embrace one to address the other. We need to move away from both. And so one of the things I'd say is that nuclear power is not a solution either on a cost level, on a time level, on a safety level, on a any level to the challenges of climate change. And the other thing about nuclear power is that you get three years of a reactor fuel rod generating electricity and out of that you get 100,000 years of a carcinogenic waste. Now that is not a responsible way to fuel a future. It's expensive, it's risky. When it goes wrong, like Fukushima, it's horrendous or churnable. When it goes right, you get a waste every day that needs to be monitored, isolated for the next 100,000 years. It's intimately linked with weapons and it is just an underperforming industry and an old industry. Coal and uranium are dirty fuels. We shouldn't dig them, ship them, burn them. Um, and so our energy future, the question isn't what are we going to do for energy? Like we've got heaps of energy. The question is how do we smartly capture, store and transfer? Yeah. Generation's not a problem. We actually have got a nuclear solution in the form of a fusion reactor 93 million kilometres away. <laughs> and that is pumping out more energy than the world could use. We need to find better ways. Is it a ways. safe distance as well? It's well shielded. <laughs> And it's already established. It's got all its permits. Yeah. So <laughs> we are, uh, terrestrial nuclear has no role. Celestial nuclear <laughs> sustains life in our galaxy. You're beautiful. Thank you so much. There's so much in what we've talked about. I'm, um, I hope our listeners feel as, as moved as I am. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been lovely to speak with you. Yeah, cool. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Amanda Tattersall and Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Walkerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We're also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast, follow us on Twitter at Changemakers99, and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Changemakers.